Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, Daniel, the introduction. Well, out of the frying pan into the fire we're going to go. I think in ways you can hardly imagine just yet. I want to welcome you to an exciting, hopefully eye-opening and inspiring study of the incomparable and the very controversial book of Daniel. Now most believers, most of you have at one time or another studied passages taken from Daniel or even the entire book and we're going to find reference to those passages peppered into various New Testament books and of course in the book of Revelation. However, I pray that after the end of some months of our new study that you'll agree that at least you've heard it from a different perspective. And the perspective that I'm endeavoring to present it to you is one of spiritual and intellectual honesty and is true to the context, the intended meaning, and the historicity of Daniel as we can get, at least at this point, along this long road toward God's ultimate plan of redemption. Now, there, I will warn you, there are several uncomfortable, very inconvenient realities that we're going to face as we work our way through the book of Daniel. Things that must have been as utterly head-scratching to the earliest authors of Daniel's, uh, earliest hearers rather of Daniel's pronouncement as it was to that human author who received these visions from God and then wrote them down. Now we're going to discover some answers to some very difficult questions that we're going to be confronted with and in other cases probably a limited range of possibilities is going to be the best that we can do. I share frankly with you that if you haven't studied the Torah with us in the past, this book is going to be all the more challenging for you than for others who have. Now, the most expedient way to study this book would just be to dive right into it head first. However, I don't believe it would be the most effective way. It wouldn't be the most profitable for us. And as I was contemplating how best to approach the teaching of Daniel, I realized that there was simply no way around the subject of systematic theology. And all the doctrines proposed by each of the many systematic theologies held by the many institutional Christian denominations. And one of the reasons that there are so many books and commentaries on the book of Daniel and why they can vary so drastically in what they teach is the author's own personally held theology. Now the book of Daniel is in many ways a class in a class by itself. And I think by the end of today's lesson you're going to come to understand that. This relatively short book of only 12 chapters lies at the crossroads of our faith. It is the bridge from the past to an as yet unrealized future. 
even though our current conditions are that that future may be just around the corner if it's not upon us right now. The book of Revelation is dependent upon Daniel. Nearly everything that we know or we think we know about the end times counts on Daniel. How to make sense of world history since the time of the Babylonian Empire is dependent upon Daniel. Even the trustworthiness of the Bible, especially of the New Testament, stands upon what we discover in and about the book of Daniel. So these are the high stakes we're going to be dealing with when we decide to delve deeply into this particular book. And that's why we're going to take our time. And we're going to integrate several disciplines and subjects into our study that at first blush might not seem needed or even appropriate. Things that will bother you. And I suspect that shortly you're going to wonder if I'm trying to approach you as theologians or perhaps trying to make you into theologians. I need you to trust me that I'm not. And one of the reasons that you can believe that is because I'm not a fan of theology. Particularly not of systematic theology. So a definition of these two terms is probably the best place for us to begin. Theology is defined by Webster's as the study of religious faith, practice, and experience. The study of God and of God's relation to the world. The American Heritage Dictionary defines theology in this way. The study of the nature of God and of religious truth. A rational inquiry into religious questions. So without dissecting all that too far, the modern definition of theology is a study of God, whomever you hold that to be, but done in a rationalistic manner. But there's more. Every standard dictionary definition I could find also expounded on the meaning of theology to include words like these as are printed in the American Heritage Dictionary. A system or a school of opinions concerning God and religious questions. Thus we are led right to the term systematic which modifies the word theology. And in modern times it would be fair to say that all mainstream Christian theology is systematic theology. On the other hand, Christian Hebrew roots takes a little bit different approach. Now, systematic means something that is related to or consisting of a system. And a system, according to Webster's, is a regularly interacting or interdependent group of items forming a unified whole. And as pertains to religion, it is an organized set of doctrines, ideas, or principles usually intended to explain the arrangement or working of a systematic whole. So it's kind of a circle. So again, without dissecting it too far, a system 
is a carefully defined set of ideas or doctrines or parts that are all fully uh, interdependent on the group as a whole in order to form an end product or an end function. In the case of religion, and as it is at the core of the modern church institution, a unified theology is said to be achieved using a systematic approach. And I'm here to tell you that the entire concept of a knowledge of God and His Word to mankind that has been arrived at systematically is inherently flawed. Now this is going to hurt your head a little bit. So I want you to, I want to try a little further, not too far I hope, to articulate this particular line of thought. In a lesson I gave quite some time ago regarding the book of 1 Samuel, I delved into the inherent qualities and problems with a systematic approach to discovering God and His attributes and to studying the Bible. And I'd like to review and in some cases repeat some of that now. Modern systematic theology was a response to the threat of the European Enlightenment of the early 1700s. And it sought to gut the church of its spirituality by means of ushering in secular humanism to replace it. Since this was the era when intellectualism and the scientific method were established as the best of all possible protocols for the discovery of truth, the church felt pressured into formulating a systematic method to present itself. The hope was that it would be intellectually acceptable to the leaders of this new enlightened society. And the system that was created was called theology and it sought to divide and to separate the essence and the practice of Christianity into about ten categories. And each category was given a a fancy academic name and the church endeavored to answer a series of key questions about Christian beliefs that each of these ten or so categories would naturally ask. At the end of the day, the answers to those questions formed the basis for the interpretation of the Bible. The church calls those answers doctrines. And thus the conclusions formed by these doctrinal principles when they're used together formed an intertwined and interdependent unified theological system. Now the downside was that if one of the doctrines that were part of the system changed or failed, the entire system was affected, since it's viewed as a whole. Let me give you an example. An automobile is a system. There's many parts needed to form that system. An engine, steering, a passenger cabin, transmission, brakes, lighting, so on. And there are many possible approaches to defining each part of that system. An engine can be gas, it can be diesel, it can be electric, it can even be a hybrid of those. It can have four cylinders, six, eight, it can even have none. 
It can have disc brakes, drum brakes, a combination of both. It can be designed to seat two or four or six people or even more in the passenger cabin. It can locate the engine in the front of the car and then use a transmission and a drive shaft to drive the rear wheels. Or it can put the engine in the front and drive the front wheels without a drive shaft. Or it can put the engine in the back of the car and so on and so forth. But here's the thing. Whatever system is created is completely interdependent. Each part is designed to work in concert with all the other parts. You can choose to design it with the engine in the front, but once committed and the car is in production, you can't just decide to move the engine to the rear. You can, but it would take a complete makeover of the system. And as anyone with a car knows, it didn't take much to bring that entire system to a halt. <clears throat> if you have as little as a flat tire, the entire system becomes inoperable to achieve what it was designed to do, move people around. Systematic theology operates the same way. If one part breaks down, the entire system fails. If one doctrine of the system is proved wrong, it has a ripple effect across the many other doctrines that forms the system. <clears throat> that we have many differing systematic theologies ought to be a clue that as good as was the intent, there is an inherent flaw within the very concept of trying to use a systems approach understanding and describing God and to deciphering the Holy Scriptures. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. The basis of systematic theology, the basis for practically all Christianity, <clears throat> allows for almost no gray areas, no wiggle room. The required answers to the generally ten categorical elements, the doctrines of systematic theology must be firm and unequivocal. I don't know or the scripture isn't clear on the subject or it can be this or it could be that or something else. That's just not workable. You can't have the engine to a car both in the front and the rear at the same time. And you can't just leave the matter undecided or you can't build the system in the first place. You must decide and then you have to stick with it. A system only works if each part of it is clearly defined, generally inflexible, because everything has to work together as a whole. Now let me, let me illustrate this from another angle. <clears throat> Christian systematic theology looks into the scriptures almost exclusively, the New Testament scriptures written by Paul, to find the answers to those several questions posed by each of the ten categories. And there are usually a number of verses, a number of Bible verses that address each one of these questions, sometimes directly, at other times only by implication. And allow me to give you five familiar subjects that are typically addressed by systematic theology. Four of them are the law, eternal security, the Sabbath, and the deity of Christ. It's the fifth one. 
the end times doctrines called eschatology by Bible academics that's at the heart of the matter in the book of Daniel. If you've ever spent much time in your Bible, you know that there are several verses spread throughout the New Testament that address each of these subjects and they're not precisely the same answer merely repeated in each verse but rather slightly different perspectives of each subject are brought to light and so the answers can vary a little bit but due to the implementation of a systematic approach to theology a more rigid and well-defined answer is required an answer that will become the accepted doctrine for that subject. And the correct answer is established when a consensus of a particular denomination's leaders feel that they've defined what best reflects what is intended by the various passages of Scripture concerning any particular subject when weighed as a whole. Or depending on what some underlying foundational theological viewpoint might demand. The answer contained in one particular verse just might get chosen while others that don't closely validate that viewpoint get discarded. Perhaps the most highly revered New Testament scholar of modern times is a fellow named E.P. Sanders. He's a believer but to try to characterize him as conservative or liberal would be almost impossible. And that's why I like him so much. A few years ago, at a conference of graduate students of philosophy at Villanova University, he was asked to discuss Paul, the New Testament, and the church. Here's a short excerpt that I hope you will listen to very carefully. The Journal of Philosophy and Scripture moderator made this comment. In your work, you emphasize the non-systematic approach of Paul's thought. It's undeniable that he's not trying to construct a philosophy or a theology that would be doctrinal. He's addressing specific concerns. And sometimes his answers seem to contradict each other. I wonder if that non-systematic approach will always end up being a tough spot for those who do want to appropriate a Pauline, Paul's, Paul type of message or a Pauline program into a philosophical or even a theological system. E.P. Sanders answers it this way. Oh, it doesn't slow them up at all. They just take parts. The great thing about saying that you accept a figure or that you accept a text, for example, the modern fundamentalists who say they accept the entire Bible, is that you can just choose bits and pieces you will make use of and ignore the bits and pieces that you don't want to make use of. So that's the way it is with appropriating Paul. I can say that I accept the entire Paul while only taking bits of Paul. I'm sure that the Lutheran theologians of the post-Reformation period thought that they were doing justice to the whole Paul. But in fact, they were leaving out such important things as sacramentalism and mysticism and so on, which are part of the whole Paul. So you can pretend to do it and yet not actually do it.
bottom line to this. The Bible doesn't recognize itself as a system. Paul did not create a Christian system and therefore a systematic theology. Rather, it was men within the institutional Gentile church that came far later that picked and chose certain scriptural passages, usually from the sayings of Paul, in order to create a system that seemed to validate some agenda that they had in mind. Now a visual illustration of this development of a systematic theology might be thought of as the construction of a wall, a high straight wall, like this one here. On one side of the wall lay the denominational orthodoxy, on the other side, heresy. Orthodoxy is the doctrines that forms that particular belief system. Heresy means disagreement with the doctrines. Therefore, for any particular systematic theology, on one side of the wall is truth, the other side of the wall is error. Now, no analogy I'm going to be able to give you is perfect. Nor is it in my intent to demean the brilliant Bible scholars and good men and women that have brought us so many good, solid Bible commentaries. But I think this analogy of a wall is reasonably representative of how a systematic theology is implemented in principle. However, here's the crux of the matter. This sort of systematic approach to knowing God or to learning the scriptures is not how the ancient Hebrews nor how Judaism up to the time of Christ ever envisioned establishing the revelation of divine truth. Rather, they recognized that for practically any subject that we can envision, that the scriptures give us several aspects, plus some number of applicable principles concerning a subject as boundaries for dealing with it. But systematic theology demands by its nature, a nature that demands orthodoxy, that we must choose only the best one of those several aspects of each subject as preeminent. And then the other aspects are given less weight or even deemed irrelevant because they don't agree with our underlying theology. But of course, sometimes after you've chosen the answers to the first four or five or six categorical questions, and then you've established them as doctrines, it narrows down the possible range of choices that you can even make to answer the remaining categorical questions because an answer that doesn't take the previous categorical answers into account could easily lead to a set of doctrines that conflicts with one another. If I choose to create a car and I put the engine in the rear of the car, I can't also put the luggage compartment, the trunk, there as well, even though that's where I think it needs to go. Once I've made the decision where the engine goes, it dictates the nature of many other parts of the system. Then when I decide upon the size and the shape, the capacity, of the passenger cabin, now the choices for the remaining parts of the system becomes even narrower. 
what we have with the way that modern systematic theology operates is that there are perhaps 3,000 or so sturdy, nearly impenetrable denominational walls in existence today. And in each case, a believer must select which one of these walls seems to be the right wall. And then stand on the side of the wall that that denomination says is the right side. And since there is generally but one preeminent and best answer to each categorical systematic question, it is the answers to those questions that forms the substance of that wall. But was the Bible actually created in such a way as that, that that's how we're supposed to use it? Is that how it is that it's intended for us to find the truth? Is that the best means to arrive at the set of answers that when taken together lays out all the divine attributes of God and how to live within our Christian faith? Modern theologians would say yes. I say no. Neither God nor His Word functions as a system. And to try to organize either into a system just brings dysfunction. God is a God of patterns, not of systems. A pattern can be overlaid atop many different situations. It gives us a set of boundaries to operate within. It provides models for moral decision making. A system, as I've shown you, inherently operates pretty rigidly. And it's got to have a definite predetermined answer, a doctrine, to pretty much every situation that arises. Further, a pattern simply indicates the general nature of how God operates. It does not purport to tell us why God operates the way He does. Nor does it have to agree with our human logic in order for it to be valid. Nor does any God-ordained pattern put the Lord into a box such that He has no choice but to do something a certain way. Systematic theology, however, often does exactly that. Well, the next major flaw that's inherent to systematic theology is that it is an attempt to explain the non-rational and the supernatural in rational and natural terms. Why is that? Because a system is inherently man-made. It's derived from human ingenuity. But it's also riddled with human limitations. Recall that systematic theology was first created in order to comply with the scientific method. And thus it would be better able to stand up to scrutiny by scientists. So how exactly can a scientist or a theologian scrutinize or scientifically test the spiritual? Here's what I mean by that. God is spirit. The Word of God gives us spiritual principles. But Webster's defines the term rational, which is at the heart of any systems approach, this way. Consistent with or based on reason. Logical. The systematic theology wants to find God 
and his instructions to his worshipers as based on reason and on logic. Reason, reason and logic are human traits. But systematic theology wants to assign those traits to God. Thus, systematic theology judges and it explains God's actions and it explains his teachings as based on human logic, human reason. If we can't explain what God does and what occurrences and events we see in the Bible logically, rationally, then they either didn't happen or they're fairy tales. The same issue arises with systematic theology's tendency to want to find natural solutions to miraculous biblical events. Webster says that natural means present in or produced by nature, conforming to the usual or ordinary course of nature. In other words, as it pertains to God or, or to the Holy Scriptures, whatever it is in the Bible... Whatever it is that it's telling us about, or illustrating at some point, it has to conform to the observable, physical nature of the world around us. And it has to operate as it usually operates in ways that seem reasonable to our human minds. This has led to the skeptical mindset of the most prevalent Bible academics for the past century. A mindset that completely dominates our seminaries and our theological universities and has for decades. But it's a mindset that most church lay people have absolutely no idea exists deep within the bowels of their denominational institution and in the hearts and teaching of their denominational leadership. It's a mindset that proclaims this. There is no such thing as miracles. There is no such thing as predictive prophecy. So-called miracles in the Bible must be and can be explained in purely natural, rational terms. And predictive prophecy is seen as simply a unique style of literature. It operates such that long after a cataclysmic or a societal altering event has happened, it puts the prediction of that event into the mouth of a made-up Bible character that lived supposedly centuries earlier. It's a contrived story that turns hindsight into foresight in order to achieve some pious purpose. And it's probably not going to make you feel too good to know that many of the best known and most influential Bible scholars of our day are not believers. They simply see the Bible as a specialized kind of ancient literature. And they've made it their careers, their career field, their life's work to analyze it. If some of them claim to be believers, then I think you will very soon question that sincerity. Or even what they mean by identifying themselves as Christians. These scholars belong to what is loosely called the school of Bible criticism. However, there has arisen a branch 
of Bible criticism called the school of higher criticism. And these we might classify in our common day terms of being the most liberal of theologians. Now I'm not going to get into all the nuances here. I'm not going to start naming names. I just want you to hear and to be familiar with these terms. So that when you hear of a scholar being called a Bible critic or he's part of the higher criticism academia, you're going to factor that in when you read their work. I want to summarize this. The vast bulk of Bible commentaries and Bible scholars for the last century do not accept the supernatural. They only accept the natural and the humanly rational. Therefore, they do not accept the possibility of miracles, nor do they accept that there is such a thing as prophecy that can predict the future. So what do you imagine their position might be on the book of Daniel? Sadly, even our most fundamental and conservative Christian colleges and seminaries have fallen to the enormous pressure to question the supernatural and miraculous character of the Bible, and especially that of Daniel. Daniel is probably the most critically scrutinized and dismissed book of the Bible. Thus, among other accusations, the book of Daniel is said to have not been created by Daniel, the exile from Judah, who became a member of of the Babylonian king's royal court. Rather, the book of Daniel, they say, is an interesting and clever fraud that was written during the terrible times that Israel suffered under the hand of the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes at about the time of the Maccabean Rebellion, which is around 165 B.C. It was written to give the Jewish people of that time hope. Why do they arrive at that conclusion? Now, please pay very close attention, and this is going to slip right by you. Even though there is no good evidence, there is no proof of any kind of, any kind of, of their assertion, that Daniel was written long after the predictions that it supposedly contained had been fulfilled. It's only logical, rational, natural conclusions that can be reached since the number one premise that they hold is they approach the study of Holy Scripture in that there is no such thing as the supernatural, there is no such thing as divine miracles, there is no such thing as predictive uh, prophecy. Now, can, uh, imagine if you or I approached the Bible and our Christian faith like that. How does one call himself a believer if you don't even believe in the spiritual sphere? What happens if you don't believe the Bible is the truth? How can you believe in Jesus Christ if you destroy the very foundation for believing who He is? The divine Messiah, the Son of God. And the foundation is that He fulfilled all those predictive prophecies of a coming Messiah. But then it gets even dicier. Turn your Bibles to Matthew. The book of Matthew. I want you all to read along with me. Turn to chapter 24. The book of Matthew and chapter 24. 
Book of Matthew, chapter 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1254. We're going to read the first 31 verses. As Yeshua left the temple and was going away, his Talmudim, his disciples came and called his attention to its buildings. But he answered them, you see all these? Yes, I tell you, they'll be totally destroyed. Not a single stone will be left standing. And when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, he said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that you are coming and that the Olam Hazah is ending? And Yeshua replied, Watch out now, don't let anybody fool you, because many are going to come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah. They will lead many astray. You'll hear the noise of wars nearby, news of wars far off. See to it that you don't become frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come, because people will fight each other, nations will fight each other, there will be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. And at that time you'll be arrested, and you'll be handed over to be punished and put to death, and all peoples will hate you because of me. At that time many will be trapped into betraying and hating each other. Many false prophets will appear. It'll, they'll fool many people. And many people's love will grow cold because of an increased distance from Torah. But whoever holds out till the end will be delivered. And this good news about the kingdom will be announced throughout the whole world as a witness to all the nations. It is then that the end will come. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this illusion that it, that, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone's on the roof... He must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to escape in winter or on Shabbat, the Sabbath. For there will be trouble then worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now. There will be nothing like it again. Indeed, if the length of this time had not been limited, no one would survive. But for the sake of those who have been chosen, its length will be limited. At that time, if someone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. For there will appear false messiahs, false prophets performing great miracles, amazing things, so as to fool even the chosen, if possible. There, I've told you in advance. So if people say to you, listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Or look, he's hidden away in a secret room, don't believe it. Because when the Son of Man does come, it will be like lightning that flashes out in the east and fills the sky to the western horizon. Wherever there's a dead body, that's where you find vultures. But immediately following the troubles of those times, the sun will grow dark. The moon will stop shining. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers in heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels with a great shofar. And they will gather together his chosen people from the four winds. From one end of the heavens to the other.
Here we have a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew where Yeshua himself is doing the prophesying, the predicting of all kinds of future events. Even more, look closely at verses 15 and 16. Because there it says, So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this illusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. As we will in time cover in detail during our study of Daniel, Christ is explicitly quoting the book of Daniel. Chapter 9, verse 27. Here is that passage in Daniel for comparison. Then after after the 62 weeks, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood, and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of detestable things the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out of the desolator. Or using a Bible version that employs words that are more familiar to our ears, means the same thing. You find this in the Septuagint. And one week shall establish the covenant with many, and in the midst of the week my sacrifice and drink offering will be taken away, and on the temple shall be the abomination of desolations. And at the end of time an end shall be put to the desolation. Now, fellow believers... What do these Bible scholars do with this verse in Matthew? Where we have Messiah himself quoting Daniel by name, validating Daniel by name, and holding Daniel high. They generally say one of two things is obvious. Either Christ was deceived into believing that the book of Daniel was true, or he didn't know. And so he was simply wrong. Now let me ask you a question. If prophecy is not possible, and if the supernatural is not possible, and if Christ can be deceived or merely wrong in his pronouncement, and it perhaps, perhaps at times be ignorant of the truth, what are we to do not only with his words and his teachings, but with the fulfilled prophecies that are the supposed proof of him as the Messiah and as the divine Son of God. So now I think you can see why at the beginning of this introduction to the book of Daniel, I told you the stakes couldn't be any higher as regards this particular book of Scripture. The reality is that the veracity of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament especially, hinges on the book of Daniel. If the book of Daniel is only a well-intentioned but fraudulent attempt by some unknown Jewish writer to try to lift the spirits of his oppressed people, a work that was recreated only about 165 years before Christ was born, and well after most of the events it pretended, to, it pretended to predict had already happened, then it not only doesn't belong in our Bibles, 
But it would seem that Yeshua himself was taken in by it. And so any of his predictions for the future can't be taken seriously. But even more devastating is that if that is indeed the case, then all of Jesus' claims to be God also have to be discounted and ultimately labeled as false. And that, my friends, is precisely the position of some of the most revered and respected Bible academics of our day. And it is one of the several reasons why you'll regularly hear or read Daniel presented the way it often is. As more legend and fable than Bible history and prophecy. But even more, this Bible academic mindset has led to why so much of the modern church has completely fallen off its tracks. No longer has any real belief that the Bible is what it purports itself to be. The infallible word of God. Rather, they say, even though Jesus Christ no doubt was a real person, he represents neither God nor godliness. But rather, he was just a very good teacher. Teacher who tried to change the world by espousing a philosophy of life that revolves around universal love, peace, and pacifism. Now have you, or do you, sometimes attend a more liberal-oriented church? Do you listen to Christian teachers on the radio or the internet or have commentaries that you enjoy that claim that Daniel is in fact a late book as opposed to having been written when it claims to be? Then, you are getting your Bible knowledge from church leaders who don't truly believe in divine prophecy. They don't take Jesus' own words literally. They don't accept that what he believed and taught is even accurately portrayed in the New Testament. Do you understand that such a position as this about the book of Daniel also destroys the book of Revelation? because so much of it's built upon Daniel's visions and prophecies. So I ask you to hear this and to understand that those folks are wrong. And they love and trust their own intellect above all else. We will go forward in our study understanding that the book of Daniel is true. It was written by Daniel exactly when he says it was. It has proved itself over and over again without error. Biblical prophecy is real. It has never failed with proof after proof of it. It's even playing out before our very eyes, especially as it regards Israel. (coughs) Yeshua is God. Every word he uttered as predictive prophecy has happened or it's going to happen. There's no middle ground on this matter. It's anything but a mere academic mind game. See, you and I have to be prepared to do something that most Christians are loath to do because typically we've been taught that it's not loving to do so. And that is to make a strong judgment and take a firm stand. There is right doctrine and there is wrong doctrine. 
or there is no such thing is divine biblical truth. There's not just my perspective and your perspective and somebody else's perspective on any given subject within the Word of God. Sometimes the issues are relatively small. They don't carry a great deal of weight. Or they are unclear. And all that we can reasonably have is opinion and speculation. But other biblical issues are eloquently articulated. They don't contain any ambiguity. And they amount to the foundational essence of our faith in Yeshua. Now I encourage you to weigh the evidence and stand on the side of truth even if it's inconvenient. Even if it might prove costly in terms of friendships. Perhaps even family relationships. But it will also change your life for the better. With brutal honesty. Our Savior tells us this in Matthew 10, 34-37. Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It's not peace I've come to bring, but a sword. Because I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies will become the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than he loves me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me. We're going to continue this introduction to Daniel next week. And I'm going to take you even deeper into the little understood world of systematic theology. And we will begin to focus on a critical theological doctrine called millennialism. Because it has everything to do with how any particular denomination views the book of Daniel as regards the events and the sequence of the end times.